You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Werewolves of War by D.W. Hall Part C Good Lord, Lance exclaimed without knowing he did so. Prod! Hey! The same man! Then that was the secret. That explained things. Hey, the hero of the Force. You're entitled to a few explanations, Douglas said. I'll give you the core of the whole scheme. There's no need to tell you that it must be guarded with your life. He drew his chair closer to Lance's. Yes, it is true. The man you knew as Prod in reality is Captain Hay. You see, Lance, headquarters was taking no chances with what I just called the torpedo plan. Every move had to be conducted with the utmost secrecy. Had to be. For the torpedo plan is, in some ways, America's last hope. Our base, number five, was chosen as the center of activity, the base from which the steps paving the way for the plan would be taken. The two best pilots in the service were needed. You and Hay were chosen. It was decided it would be best to mask Hay's real identity. So, officially, he was sent to the hospital. In reality, he came here, under the name of Prod. Why? Because there's a spy somewhere. We don't seem to be able to track him. He's infernally clever. And if the famous Captain Hay was switched to Base 5, putting the two best pilots in the service together, that spied no something was in the air. Understand? Lance nodded dumbly. A great light was beginning to shower him. To more completely mask our true purpose, the Colonel continued, Hay was instructed to make it appear as if he were a spy. And it was a damned hard job. The real spy, whoever he is, and wherever he is, would thus be additionally fooled. For all he'd know, the Slavs might have sent another over to back him up. That's why Hay never shot down an enemy plane. Says something about his skill as a pilot, doesn't it? Never able to defend himself save by maneuvering. He's a great flyer." Lance could only nod dumbly again. After a couple of weeks at this base, Douglas went on, Hay was to cross the lines one night with you accompanying him. You, unintentionally, would thus occupy the enemy planes while Hay attended to the real business of the evening. And you did splendidly." "'The real business?' Lance questioned. "'What the devil was that? I thought the real business was to get the dope on Hill 333. So it was, partially, but also to take the first step of the torpedo plan, which was for Hay to switch over to a Slav plane. What? The Colonel repeated his statement somewhat dryly. Lance's square jaw dropped abruptly. But, but, he exclaimed, how the devil could he do that? Colonel Douglas grinned. By a very neat contraption from the brain of one of our most valuable scientists, he explained. Hay's scout was specially fitted up before you left, while you were sleeping, in fact. Two experts from Washington arrived with that batch of new recruits this afternoon. A tiny sliding door was cut in the fuselage of the scout, and a sort of folding ladder put inside. It was motivated by some rather complex spring-work, but the really ingenious thing about it was the powerful electromagnet at its base. It's rather over my head, he smiled. I'm a plain fighting man, and sometimes it seems that scientists and not fighting men are going to win this war. But at any rate, it worked like this. Hay lures, or maneuvers, a Slav plane away from its fellows, and while you're down below entertaining the others, flies wing to wing with it. 
He touches the spring of his ladder, and it shoots out, powerfully magnetized, and clamps onto the steel fuselage of the Slav. The automatic control keeps Hay's scout steady, and the ladder is so highly attractive that the Slav simply can't get away. Hay crosses the gulf, taking with him the cord which controls the electromagnet. He forces his way into the Slav, shoots down its pilot, releases the pull of the magnet, and there you are, our best pilot in possession of a Slav plane, and clad in a Slav officer's uniform. Do you get the idea now? Lance strove for appropriate words. Gee, he spluttered, it's—it's wonderful. And to think I tried to start a fight with Hay. I wish I'd known before. But I suppose, he added, it was best to let not even me in on it, to keep it absolutely secret. Exactly. And now what's Hay's mission? Lance asked eagerly. Colonel Douglas's face became sober. A damnably dangerous one, and a mighty desperate one. As I said, the torpedo plan, which Hay is striving to carry out, seems to be America's last chance. We're holding the United Slavs, but only just. We simply can't break their line or make any headway against them. And when they do unleash their big push, there's nothing to stop them. So we're gambling everything on this slim hope. American science, he continued, has perfected a weapon which is called the flying torpedo. It's a ghastly thing, too. Damn it, I actually feel sorry for the poor devils it bursts on. It's a sort of riposte to their disintegrating flame. Picture a huge tank-like affair of steel, one hundred feet long. Picture a few dozen of them. Picture them crammed to overflowing with tons of glycoscarzite, the most destructive explosive the mind of man has yet conceived. An explosive that can't be hurled in a shell and can't be dropped in a bomb from a plane. A pound or so of it, man, lays waste a square mile of anything. Even our scientists are a bit afraid of it. They've been trying to think up a way of unleashing it at the Slavs, and these flying torpedoes seem to be the answer. The torpedoes are purely mechanical, therefore they can soar to any height whatsoever, twenty, thirty, even forty miles. All right. Now, picture a dozen or so of these torpedoes soaring over the most important Slav bases and headquarters, thirty miles above the earth, at night, of course, and absolutely invisible to the most powerful search-rays. They fly without the slightest sounds. Get that? Well, when this squadron of awful death arrives at the exact point over the place to be demolished, the motive force switches off and down they crash. Imagine what will happen when they collide with the ground. Douglas, with Lance's tense eyes on him, struck a clenched fist into an open palm. Tons of glycoscarzite, Lance, unleashed, without warning, from miles above, thirty of these torpedoes, each a hundred feet long, dropping down on the very heart of the Slav invasion, killing, blowing to bits, rather, every living thing, every fortification, every tree, every tank, every gun, every flame-thrower, every plane in a radius of hundreds of miles. God! came from Lance's numb lips. God! But, and the colonel held up a straight forefinger, these torpedoes must be guided from the place they raid. Into the silence Lance whispered, And that, that is Hay's job? That, Douglas confirmed levelly, is Hay's job, and yours. Their eyes met, held, 
and then Lance's clean young face smiled. "'Thank God, sir,' he cried, "'that I am to help strike the blow that'll free our country.' Colonel Douglas answered his smile with a smile. "'Lance,' he said, "'it's because Washington has put this job into haze in your hands that I know, I know, it will succeed.' "'It will.' Douglas lowered his voice again. This is why those flying torpedoes must be guided from the Slav's innermost base. In the first place, they fly too high for an accompanying plane to guide them. In the second, the power that releases them to hurtle downwards must come from the enemy base itself, to permit of no possible error. This must not fail. But, put in Lance, how do the torpedoes fly? What motivates them? A closely guarded secret, of course, he was told. I merely possess a slight comprehension of it. I know that it is an adaptation of that discovery of Professor Singe two years ago, cosmic attraction. Eventually, perhaps, it will permit interplanetary travel. This use of it is simply the beginning. But it is to America's everlasting glory that a scientist of hers developed it. You know how a sliver of wood is propelled by the ripples of a pond? Vibrations of the water, really. Well, evidently there are somewhat similar vibrations in the ether cosmic force. Each one of these flying torpedoes contains a highly expensive, intricate mechanism which transforms this invisible vibration power into material propulsion. The mechanism is adjusted to propel the torpedo at such an altitude in such a direction. We possess no means of setting the machines to stop at a certain place, and so tumble earthwards. That's where you and Hay come in. Hay is now with forged documents, passing himself off as a regular Slav pilot. He speaks the tongue. Two nights from now you, Lance, keep a rendezvous with Hay at an isolated ranch in the Lake Tahoe country, the Sola Ranch, where we staged that big fight a few months back. Lance nodded. In your plane is an instrument which is the kernel of the scheme. It arrives here tomorrow. It's a device which shoots an invisible beam fifty miles into the air. A negative beam. In sympathy with the machinery on the torpedoes. Hay sets this device near the Slav headquarters. The torpedo squadron takes off from a few hundred miles behind here, flying in the direction of the heart of the Slav forces. When they run into the beam, their motive power is nullified and down they fall. Crash. The Slavs are wiped out. Our troops charge forward in a grand attack. The Slavs, with no armament, no reinforcing troops, no supply of tanks and flamethrowers, crumple. The invasion of America is put to an end. Lance rose. His face was alight, his eyes burning with strong, unquenchable fire. It's great, sir, great. It can't fail. By God, if it takes every last drop of my blood, I'll help Hay put this through. Colonel Douglas extended his right hand, and Lance's met it in a firm shake. In the thick silence they stood thus for some minutes. Then, without moving so much as a cheek muscle, the Colonel whispered, his eyes tense, "'The door! Fling it open! I think someone's been listening!' Lance switched his alarmed gaze to it. His muscles went taut. The next moment he had leaped half across the room, jammed back the lock, and ripped the door wide open. At the other end of the dim passageway he glimpsed a scurrying figure. Lance sprang after it with a shout to Douglas. Tearing out his automatic, he flung a burst of lead at the figure. 
but that instant it wheeled and sped from sight down another passage, and when Lance got there no one was in sight. For a while he probed around, desperately, but could find no sign of anything. The base slept. Sorely troubled, he returned to find the Colonel just coming back from an equally barren search. "'Don't think he heard much,' said Douglas grimly. "'It must have been that damned spy who's been getting information of our movements. I'll have the guards redouble to prevent him from getting anything through.' He smiled at sight of Lance's anxious face. "'No need for too much worry, Lance. He couldn't have heard much. The walls are soundproof and the door fairly tight. Now you go and rip off some sleep. You need it. No more work for you till Wednesday night. You're too important. Sleep. Lance only wished he could. But the thrill of what he'd just heard was too fresh, too new. The blood pumped surgingly through his veins. His brain whirled with the thought of the glorious enterprise he and Hay were aiding so vitally. Then, too, the night was humid and sweaty. For a while Lance lay on his cot, other sleeping figures to left and right of him but his own eyes simply would not stay closed. Finally, after perhaps an hour of trying to doze off, he arose and, clad only in breeches and undershirt, wandered outside again, with a cigarette glowing in his mouth. The war might not have been, the night was so silent. Lance strolled lazily around the plain hangars, reveling in what little breeze there was. He seemed to be the only living thing abroad in the night. Then suddenly, he flung down his cigarette and ground the butt out quickly, for he saw he was not the only living thing abroad in the night. Sliding rapidly away from the end hangar was a dark form. Lance crouched instinctively and crept forward. Who was the other wanderer? Not a sentry. They paced a regular beat closer to Douglas's office. Not another, who like himself could not sleep and had sought the open. This figure was going somewhere. It had a definite object in mind. Sheltering himself behind the hangar's bulk, Lance advanced as stealthily as he could. Coming to the end one, he peered around its blunt corner. Fifty yards ahead, crossing a stubbly stretch of open ground, the mysterious prowler hurried onward. The night was dark, the moon troubled by ragged bursts of listless, heavy clouds. Lance bent almost double and left the shelter of the black hangar. Feeling his way carefully, he followed the other. Was this the unknown spy? The spy going to transmit the news he had overheard? Lance muttered a curse. He had no weapon with him. The spy, if he were a spy, would certainly be armed. But that didn't matter. It was merely unfortunate. He must track the other down, at all cost. For some minutes he crept on in this manner. The other kept hurrying forward. Lance noted a clump of brush far ahead. The figure was evidently making for this. And sure enough, as if acting directly on Lance's thought, the dark form entered the patch of growth, and did not come out on the other side. Lance broke into a trot, eyes wary and alert for sign of his prey. At any second he might be greeted by a salvo of bullets, and every fibre of his lean body was taut. As he approached the clump of brush he dropped to the ground, and came finally to it on his belly. From a distance of about ten feet he rose and charged. Expecting each moment to hear the spit of a revolver, he was more alarmed by what actually did greet him. Nothing. The patch of brush was empty. "'Well, I'll be damned,' Lance murmured. "'Where did he get to?' He gazed around, bewildered. 
the growth of bush was about ten feet wide. On either side the flat Nevada plain stretched away, empty. No figure was visible. Lance was utterly baffled. The fellow had vanished as if by magic, flown away into thin air. The young captain stood quite still, listening, probing his puzzled brain. Then, like a cat, he dropped to the ground again, and pressed an ear to it, for his ears had caught a tiny betraying hum. A hum! There was a machine of some type near him. He listened intently. The hum came from the ground on which he lay. There had to be a trap-door. Lance's fingers scrabbled around, and presently found what they looked for. He seized the ring which enabled one to pull the trap-door back, and was just about to pull when he heard from below a voice speaking in Russian. It was, then, the spy. Lance grasped the ring anew, and, exerting all his strength, hauled the trap-door back. A narrow passageway was revealed, lit by a lamp. The hum burst with doubled force on his ears. He plunged down, fists clenched, and half tumbled into a tiny room gouged from the soil. At one end was a mass of machinery, and a microphone hung suspended before it. And speaking into the microphone was the heavy-set form of a man in American uniform, his back to Lance. As the latter charged down, he rose with an alarmed shout, and wheeled around. "'My God!' breathed Lance. It was Ranth, Colonel Douglas's orderly. "'Ranth!' His dark face flushed with fury, he came leaping from his seat. The wicked little revolver hung at his belt sprang out, but Lance's right fist shot forward, knocked Ranth's hand high, and sent the gun clattering to the ground. Then for a moment they faced each other, the hum of the radiophone droning an ominous accompaniment. "'You!' Lance muttered. "'So you were the spy!' Ranth answered him with a choked oath and leaped forward again. There were no niceties to that combat. It was a matter of life and death, and each knew it. Ranth would kill him, Lance knew, if he possibly could. And he, he had to kill or capture Ranth. Otherwise the news of the torpedo plan would go through. Ranth would return to the base, and the secret of the hidden radio never be known. Another would be put in Lance's place, and when Hay kept his rendezvous at Sola Ranch, he had to win. No effort was made at defense, for those first few furious minutes. A veritable fusillade of hurtling fists stormed through the air. They each gave and took equally. Then Rant's heavy shoulders bunched. Cunningly he fainted, then whirling swung a vicious right-hand smash to Lance's chin. Lance reeled, fell, seeing Rant's hate-contorted visage dance queerly in the close air before him. The orderly clutched for his revolver, and Lance bounded up as if spring-impelled, nailed the other with two lightning-like jabs, and unleashed all his strength in an uppercut which sprawled Ranth in a limp, quivering heap. Panting, Lance surveyed him, then turned to get the gun. He felt the shock of thudding flesh in his legs, and fell again with Ranth scrambling on top of him. Steel-ribbed hands pounced on his throat, gouged savagely while the man above grunted thick curses from his slavering mouth. Lance struggled fiercely, saw a curtain of black rush down. Desperately he hooked a booted leg up, craned it over Rance's back, tugged. The terrible fingers loosened. Lance shook them off, 
rolled the other over and leaped once more to his feet, right hand clenched and ready. Ranth staggered up. The young man measured him, pivoted, and smashed his beefy jaw with a clean swing that had every ounce of Lance's hard young body behind it. The orderly shot back as if struck by a locomotive. He crashed into the radiophone, splintered the delicate instruments, and slumped, eyes glazed, to the ground. He was out. Dead out. But how much had he got through on the radiophone before being stopped? Had he told where the rendezvous was to be, told the time and place, and warned the Slavs to look for hay? Lance sighed, and was conscious that his left eye was rapidly closing, that a lip was split and his whole body sore. He slung Ranth over his shoulders and trudged wearily back to the base. He told his story to Colonel Douglas's amazed ears. Ranth, come back to life, was slapped in handcuffs, and for some time the Colonel put him through a stern inquisition. But his lips were sealed. He would not divulge how much he had succeeded in passing on to the Slavs. A brave man, Douglas observed grimly when Ranth was carried off to the brig. But it's death for him, the same as it would be death for Hay were he caught. I don't think he had a chance to get much across, sir, Lance said. I was right on him almost as soon as he got there. You won't let this cancel our rendezvous. Douglas's thin lips smiled narrowly. No. You'll be taking a greater chance, Lance, but we must gamble on how much the Slavs know. You're game, aren't you? Yes, sir. Wednesday night came. Thunderstorms muttered to each other on the lowering horizons. Gusts of fierce, wind-driven rain slanted down on the dripping base. Occasionally a crooked finger of lightning probed the black sky and lit the whole sopping countryside with a searing, flashing glare. The night patrol had taken off. A single plane, wet and gleaming under the sobbing heavens, stood on the tarmac, two heavily coated figures before it. Presently three more figures, carrying some bulky black object, carefully between them, emerged from one of the buildings. Tenderly they placed this object in the lone plane, which had been stripped of radio outfit and gas-bomb compartment to provide room. Then the two original figures were left alone once more, before the fighting machine. Far to the rear, the heavy American guns barked in their regular nightly bombardment. "'A good night for it,' Colonel Douglas, scanning the sky, said. "'And also a bad one, if only that damned lightning would stop.' Lance, pulling on thick gloves, did not reply. The Colonel consulted his watch. "'What time do you make it?' he asked. "'Exactly eight, the other answered. "'Right. At eight-six you leave.' At nine, on the dot, you meet Hay at Sola Ranch. At nine-ten, the torpedoes take off. At quarter to ten, they arrive over their destination, San Francisco and the surrounding territory. And quarter to ten, if things go correctly, which they must, is the minute that ends the Slavish invasion of America. At ten minutes to ten, five minutes after the torpedoes strike, our troops charge forward in general attack. God be with you, Lance. The fate of America is resting on your shoulders to-night. Remember." "'I'm remembering.' Colonel Douglas looked at the young man's grim set face, looked at his lithe, clean-limbed figure, and his steady black eyes, which burned with a purposeful fire, and the Colonel smiled. "'We'll win,' he said. An orderly sped from his office, saluted and rapped crisply. "'Order just received from Washington, sir. 
to proceed. Lance clasped Douglas's hand and leaped into the snug and closed cockpit. The four motors bellowed as the thin sprayed oil cascaded to them. The helicopter props spun round. "'Go to it, kid,' cried Douglas. "'Spy or no spy, you're coming out on top, and give Hay a last handshake for me.' And he swung to the salute. Lance extended his hand. Then he gave his ship the gun, and the tiny streamlined scout teetered, roared, and rose with a scream into the dripping darkness high above. The torpedo plan had started. End of Part C.